0: From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Here in the Springs, a new home is opening for women who've escaped sex trafficking. It'll provide food and shelter. Beyond that, the survivors will determine what they need when they figure that out.
1: Up to this point, they've been controlled by somebody else. So they'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before. Mm. (laughs) or cared to know before.
0: Meet the nun behind this new home. Then hop back aboard Ghost Train, CPR's new podcast about Metro Denver's struggle to create sustainable, usable transit.
2: Yeah, you might take the train to work, but it's a lot easier to do everything else by car. To me, part of the trick is to have a system such that a family only needs one car, or maybe some don't need any.
0: Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. Human trafficking is a reality in this state. The freshest data, which are from 2020, show more than 130 reported cases here. Well, there's a new home designed to help survivors. It's here in the Springs. The Bakita Mountain Home, a nonprofit, will give women the time and place they need to heal and rebuild. Co-founder Roseanne Barman is a Benedictine nun at the Bennett Hill Monastery in the Springs, and clinical social worker Liz Kosofsky is Bakita's program director. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Sister, naturally you keep the whereabouts of the home secret for safety's sake, but describe it for us. What is it meant to do for residents?
1: First of all, I'd like to mention that it's a six-bedroom home. It's a home that we are in partnership with Penrose St. Francis Hospital. And it's in the northern part of, I'd say this much about it, uh, northern part of Colorado Springs. And the main thing about the home is to create a community where love heals, empowers, and helps women go through a, a process whereby they recover from the trauma of human trafficking.
0: When you say community, It sounds to me like you think the relationships that might develop among the women are particularly important.
1: Yes, I think so because understanding human trafficking, most of their relational life has been disrupted through the process of the trafficking family, parents, Hmm. siblings. And we feel that just the community of living together in a home where they are comfortable, they're safe. It will be a part of the healing process.
0: And their basic needs will be met, housing That's right.
1: their and food. Food, they won't have to worry about it. It will be donated uh, services, so they'll have food, clothing, and shelter. Um, this is a very new adventure for us. We're just going to kind of make our way by going and by walking through it because uh, there's not many models of this in El Paso County for sure and in Colorado. They're kind of scarce, but a great need uh, for women who are survivors of human
0: trafficking. Must the residents be Christian, sister? No. There, okay. there is
1: no religious uh, commitment or affiliation that there would be expected of them. Now, we're not going to make little Catholics out of any of them. <laughs> that they, but there will be a situation in the home that it's a spiritual place. It's a healing place. It's a loving place. It's that, and that it's non-denominational.
0: What does Bakita mean?
1: Baquita is uh, the name from St. Josephine Baquita. She's a Roman Catholic saint in our tradition. Bakita is an Arabic word. It means fortunate one. And that's the name of the founding person, a a survivor of trafficking from the Sudan. And um, Bakita Mountain's home is named after her as the patron of the home.
0: She was canonized, that is, declared a saint, in 2000, I think that made her the first black woman to become a saint in modern times.
1: You're, I think you're correct on that. Yeah. I think that's correct.
0: All right, Liz, you'll start with five women. You're taking applications now for two years of shelter and support. Say more about who you picture benefiting and, frankly, how you'll connect, how you'll find women who have been trafficked.
3: So what we're looking for in prospective residents— is individuals who are actively ready to pursue healing in a sober community living environment.
0: Sober? That feels important to say.
3: Sure, absolutely. Uh, So we're looking for residents who are not actively using and committed to maintaining sobriety during the duration of their time at Bikita.
0: Hmm. I imagine that substance abuse as a way of self-medicating must be a real issue for those who have been trafficked.
3: Right, and it likely will be for some and possibly won't be for others. What I like to think about when I'm thinking about prospective residents really is that everybody's going to be an individual, right? They're going to come from a different place. They're going to be at a different place in their recovery, um, and they're going to need different things from us. When I think about recovery in general, right, I think that everybody's going to be in recovery from something Uh, but it might
1: not necessarily be substance abuse. Most of the women are in recovery coming off of substance because one way a trafficker controls his client, his person, is to get them addicted to drugs
0: and alcohol. And do you think the connection to the hospital will help you identify the prospective residents?
3: Potentially, so we're working with a number of different providers within the community Uh, in terms of just kind of sharing with them who we are and who we think might be successful residents within our program. And so we want to ensure that we're finding residents that fit into what we can do.
0: What can't you provide? That's interesting.
3: We're not emergency housing. Uh, This is not a place where we'll get a call and likely be bringing somebody in the next day. Hmm. So we want to have intentional conversations with our residents and really like provide the best picture that we can of what life will be like at Bikita and see if that fits in line with what the individual's goals and plans are for their life.
0: Because this right? is a real, um, it's a commitment you're making, but you also want to make sure they make the commitment.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely. Uh-huh.
0: Is there something special about Colorado Springs in particular? In other words, does the highway going through I-25 perhaps make it a more of an epicenter for human trafficking? Can you speak to sex trafficking perhaps in El Paso County in particular?
1: I don't have statistics on that, but I just know our interstate system, it's a global problem, it's a national problem, it's a regional problem, and it seems to be, uh, it's driven by money, and and greed. So it's hard for me to say if it's more prevalent here than it is in California or the Midwest or uh, the East Coast. It's all over.
3: And I think the reality is we could be
1: gaining residents from other states. The biggest thing I want to say about anyone who is a victim of human trafficking, it's not their fault. It's not your fault. It's just, I, I've met enough women to know that, that it's happened to them, Is all I can say. And Bequita Mountain Home will be a place of rescue and recovery of that trauma, because it's such a violation of uh, the human person.
0: Help me understand that. Why do women blame themselves?
1: Um, something's wrong with me. Women always think they don't live up to to anybody's expectations, so that's one of the things. Hmm. But for some reason, this happened to me and it's my fault, and uh, they need to be able to tell their story to be healed from it.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with two women who are making the Baquita Mountain home happen. In the Colorado Springs area, this will be a home for women who have experienced sex trafficking and who are trying to rebuild their lives. Founding member Roseanne Barman is a Benedictine nun at the Bennett Hill Monastery in the Springs. And clinical social worker Liz Kosofsky joins us. She's Bakita's program director. Sister, how did the idea for this get planted? In
1: 2014, someone said to me, Sister Roseanne, you ought to do something about human trafficking. And I said, well, what? what? What is it? What should I do? So that was the beginning of us at Bennett Hill Monastery sponsoring uh, Human Trafficking Prevention Series programs. And we started in 2014.
0: And prevention must mean spotting the signs, knowing the signs right, of human trafficking. Yes.
1: And Bennett Hill is in our mission and our purpose is to support women, especially women who are oppressed and poor and Uh, been disenfranchised from society. So uh, someone said to me at one of the sessions, well, what do we do? What happens to these women once they're rescued from trafficking? And we're talking about adult women, 18 and up. So the presenter said, they go back on the streets, there isn't anything. That's where the idea came to my head that, oh, we need to think about some place for these women to go once they're rescued and survived trafficking, but where do they heal? And that was the origin of Bakita.
0: Which makes me think that some women who leave trafficking and then find no support afterwards might go back into it. Is that true?
1: Uh, that's, that's a very big issue, and that's absolutely right. Oh. There is a home in Arapahoe County for adult women survivors, but this will be the first home in southern Colorado for women wanting to recover from human trafficking.
0: Liz, you have experience working with trauma survivors and in a residential setting like Bikita will be. How do you think that experience, I understand mostly with active military and veterans, uh, will inform your work at Biquita?
3: Sure. I, I do have experience working with individuals who've experienced trauma really in a variety of settings. And while I've worked in residential settings before, they really differ greatly from kind of what we're going to be doing at Bikita. Um, here at Baquita, we really have a unique opportunity to help individuals heal in a way that makes sense to them, right? Kind of by offering individualized treatment plans and goals that are identified by the resident, right? Um, so could that be job so training?
0: Really, that Maybe is that therapeutic yes. sessions?
3: It can mean all of those things.
0: Is it possible that they don't know yet what they need, though?
3: That's absolutely true. And so what we're hoping to offer at Paquita is a place for people to stop and take a deep breath, right? Hmm. To not have to worry about the stresses of everyday life, you know, in terms of their basic needs, which we touched on earlier, all of that will be met, but they'll also have quiet, right? Time, again, to take a breath and to reflect and to really look at what they want, right? Not what needs to happen right now, but what do I see for myself in moving forward?
0: Just being outside of the fight or flight mentality long enough to think about that feels really important.
1: Most definitely. And if I could say this, Ryan, is the fact that education will be an important factor. I've, I've had survivors tell me how because of the situation, they were not allowed to go to school they Mm. don't have their education so education is going to be a big factor for their own growth and understanding of who they are and what they want to do and their skill set they probably don't know what they're good at yet and some of them not all of them but some of them perhaps so up to this point before bakita they've been controlled by somebody else primarily their trafficker or whatever situation they're coming out of so they'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before or or cared to know before. And that's kind of hard to understand, but that does happen.
0: Before we go, I can imagine folks listening to this wondering, is this a home I can contribute to in some way? Can I cook? Can I drop off clothing? Can I make donations? Uh, Do you see the need for broader community support or are you all taken care of?
3: I'll take that one. We're in a place where we would like support from the community. And we're also in a place where we're trying to really identify what that would look like. And we want to be led by the survivors that we're serving in our home in a sense that we don't want to provide them with anything that they don't want. Uh Right. So we want to find out what they want before we're looking for people who can offer it. Mm -hmm. However, uh, we do have a place on our website, so our website is org, and individuals can go there to look at how they can support us.
0: Well, Sister and Liz, thank you for being with us. Uh, we'll check back in with you as this develops. Thanks for your time.
1: Thanks Absolutely. so much, Maureen. Thank you.
0: Sister Roseanne Barman is a nun at the Bennett Hill Monastery here in Colorado Springs. She's a founder of Bikita Mountain Home for Women Who've Survived Sex Trafficking. Liz Kosofsky is Bikita's program director. When we come back, how a transit project designed to get people out of their cars and onto trains still relies on the automobile. The latest episode of Ghost Train is about to leave the station. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
5: More Colorado lawmakers are running for Congress this year than any year we can remember.
6: Rule Colorado needs to change, and I'm ready to roll
4: up my sleeves. i entering the race for Congress for the 3rd Congressional District. That I'm running for Colorado's new 8th Congressional District.
5: Why so many hope to move from the state capital to the nations says a lot about politics in Colorado right now. Hear all about it on the latest episode of our politics podcast, Purplish, now in the Colorado Public Radio app and everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Ghost Train is CPR's new podcast about front range transit and how to get around in a greener, more user friendly way. Let's join our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, for episode
7: three. So far in this series, I've told you about how RTD built a huge rail system designed to mostly serve the suburbs and downtown Denver, home of the powerful leaders who made fast tracks happen. But that rail system, it mostly neglected the rest of Denver. So now I'm going to tell you why RTD didn't build rail lines through the city where there are more people to use them. And, after all this history, what this saga says about a possible future for transit in the city. Before we really get into that, though, we need to look at how Denver solved its transportation issues in the past. And how each of those solutions can create new problems. If you go to the 76,000-seat stadium where the Denver Broncos play football, you'll find that it's nearly surrounded by car infrastructure. Giant parking lots on one side, and the 10-lane Interstate 25 on the other. But you can take transit to the game, and not just on RTDs, buses, and trains. Okay, while well, we're on our way, I'd like to welcome you all back. This is our first paid trip in 22 months. So it's nice to see you all back. Thank you for your support. Um, Last fall, I hopped on board an antique trolley car on the edge of downtown Denver. We have mainly Bronco fans on this run? Yes? No, we do have a couple of Eagle fans. No problem. No problem. Well, it's no problem for us.
2: Though. If we lose, you guys have to walk back. I'm sorry. No, just kidding. We welcome anybody here, and everybody, so...
7: This tiny little trolley line is more than just a novelty. It's the last shred of what was once a vital piece of city infrastructure. Tracks like this stretched out into every corner of Denver about 100 years ago. The streetcars are long gone, but you can still see their ghosts if you know where to look.
4: People often think that Denver is a car city, but... Actually, it's older than the car.
7: Ryan Keeney studied the city's streetcar system in graduate school at the University of Denver. We took a walk last fall through an old neighborhood south of downtown.
4: Cars didn't really start picking up steam until like the 1910s, 1920s. But Denver was, I believe it was incorporated in the 1860s. And no one, there was no cars back then. And so how did people get around? I mean, eventually the city started to grow beyond the point where walking was practical for everything. So people had to get around faster. And the way they did that in the early 1870s, they built streetcars. Most of central Denver actually grew in a transit-oriented fashion.
7: The streetcars gave people access to more opportunities than they could ever get to on their feet alone. They also shaped the city. Every block had wide sidewalks because people needed to be able to walk to the streetcar stop. And around these stops were little downtowns, with grocery stores, restaurants, and other businesses. And they're still there today. There are people out on patios. It's a lovely afternoon in
4: late fall. It's just sort of a nice place to be. Yeah. And so what inspired my graduate research on this, actually, I had moved to... Denver six years ago to attend University of Denver, and I was riding my bike through the Platte Park neighborhood. It's just a residential neighborhood, a lot of residential character. But then out of nowhere, you start to get all these nice, you know, old commercial buildings. And it's like, wow, this is like a nice little small town Main Street. That's really nice. I wish I grew up in a place like this.
7: There was a lot that streetcars couldn't do, like move people out of the city to the mountains. So when cars came along, Denverites bought them. Now, they could quickly get across town faster than a streetcar ever could take them. Or they could drive out to the country and find solitude. By the 1950s, it was cars, and not streetcars, that were shaping growth.
6: Like many growing crowded cities, Denver is reaching out to form suburbs for pleasant,
7: wholesome living. In the suburbs, big new highways allowed people to drive even farther and even faster. Parking lots were everywhere. Sidewalks and transit, they were afterthoughts. Cars gave people the ultimate access to opportunities, the freedom to decide where they would live, work, and play.
6: Only a few minutes away from Broomfield Heights are the great recreational areas of Colorado, where forests of spruce and pine provide an ideal hideaway for a family picnic.
7: People bought more cars, and they needed space for them. So even Denver itself hollowed out its core. Historic downtown buildings were leveled and became parking lots. Streets were widened to fit more traffic. Cars became so dominant, that meant there was little space for anything else, including transit. So decades later, when RTD finally brought rail back to the Denver Metro, it avoided city streets, the walkable neighborhoods that transit once built. And when I set out to understand why, I was surprised to learn something. RTD tried to build rail through the city, and people didn't want it. From member-supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Ghost Train. The story of how one polluted, traffic-choked city went all in on trains, and what happened when that plan jumped the track. I'm Nathaniel Minor. In this episode, transit, cars, and freedom. How transportation can give people new opportunities to live well and pursue happiness. For the better part of a century, cars have delivered that for most Americans. And they've shaped our cities and our lives. But new truths are emerging. The Freedom Cars Grant comes at a price, especially for the environment and especially for people who can't get behind the wheel. And so now, some say it's time for cities like Denver to claw back space from cars and to give it to people. Key to that vision is more and better transit. Just as more Denverites were buying cars and the city was ripping out and paving over its streetcar tracks, it got a new resident, Bishop Asen Phillips.
6: I'm the senior pastor in the state of Colorado. I've been here longer than any other pastor, black or white
7: and uh, just simply means I'm old. Bishop Phillips has wisps of white hair growing at his temples. And when I met him late last year, he was wearing a black vest with a gold cross on a necklace. He grew up in Mississippi and moved to Denver in the 1950s. What was the city like? It was thriving. It was exciting. Phillips settled in the heart of Black Denver, in Five Points, the oldest Black neighborhood in the city once known as the Harlem of the West. And just to the east, Park Hill, an old streetcar neighborhood, where black families made homes after white people fled for the suburbs. I
6: actually just graduated from junior college in Kansas, Kansas, and came here on a vacation just a weekend. Fell in love with the city, first time I'd seen an area where black folk had green grass. When in Kansas City, we had to
7: sweep our front yard off and water down every
6: day because of the
7: dust. Bishop Phillips grew up in the Jim Crow South. And while some Denver neighborhoods and suburbs were limited to whites only, Phillips says Denver's relatively integrated status impressed him.
6: Five o'clock in the evening, you would see downtown close and white folk move to the Five Point area. They would honor all the nightclubs, the bars, the restaurants. It was a thriving community. And it kept the community from being ghettoized. There was a tremendous idolization of Five Points. It represented more than it was. It represented freedom, equality, economic prudence for black folk, not just in Colorado. People came from all around the nation just to visit Five Points. Anybody coming to Denver... Wanted to
7: see five for Bishop Phillips had no money, but he did have a car, a 1953 Plymouth that he slept in. And after he got on his feet and met his wife, he began pastoring churches in the two neighborhoods. He became a community institution. Through all that, cars have always been important to him. When I met him last year, he had four aging luxury sedans in his driveway, including a Rolls Royce. Do you just have the four? The four cars. I had six. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) This man loves cars because he remembers what life was like before he got one.
6: I rode on them raggedy streetcars in Kansas City. Uh, They had them all over everywhere. But they made more noise, created more dust, more traffic, more disruption.
7: Unlike someone like Ryan Keeney, Bishop Phillips does not romanticize streetcars at all. And it's not just that they were uncomfortable. In his experience, transit was segregated and racist. You see, whether it was a bus or a streetcar, you, if you're black,
6: you gotta get back. You still couldn't sit down.
7: Mm-hmm. And so a car was freedom. You, you, you could go where you want, when you want. It's your car. I don't care how rag it
6: is, how I many dents in it you watched it, because it belonged to you.
7: On a streetcar or a bus, Bishop Phillips was forced to sit in the back. could only go where it took him. With a car in his life, he was in the driver's seat. By the 1980s, Bishop Phillips had moved his main church out of Park Hill, but he still had strong connections to his old neighborhoods. He would preach on the bed of a truck in Five Points once a month. And it was during this time that Denver got another new resident, Deborah Basket. She was a young transportation planner for RTD. Now, she has silvery hair and a sharp smile. In the 80s, her job was to help pave the way for RTD's first ever light rail line. This predated the big Fast Tracks plan we've talked about for the last two episodes by about a decade, and it focused solely on Denver. They wanted to put it through Five Points and Park Hill, and that excited Deborah.
5: I think we were at a place in time where RTD and planners realized things were changing and that community-driven projects were more important than just moving cars.
7: Because while Bishop Phillips loved cars, by the 1980s, the United States had developed a very racist track record when it came to building roads for those cars. New highways split apart minority neighborhoods across the country displacing thousands of residents and causing urban blight. One infamous example from New York was less obvious.
5: Bridges, underpasses were built so buses could not fit under them, so that marginalized people were not going to be able to use that highway to get to jobs and access to services.
7: Deborah thought this light rail project would be different. She thought it would help residents access more opportunities, like jobs and services and she thought the train might act like the streetcars of Denver's past by attracting more economic growth in these walkable neighborhoods, places where you didn't need an expensive car. The train would be available to anyone who could afford the fare. It would link Five Points with Park Hill and connect both neighborhoods with jobs downtown. The tracks would run down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, a leafy street with wide sidewalks on both sides. And if that all sounds great, Bishop Phillips saw it much differently. When you first heard that they wanted to do Martin Luther King, what did you think of that?
6: I understood that they were aiming at destroying the image of the black community. It wasn't just a careless thought. They had been systematically planning for the last 30, 40
7: years, how do we get black folk out of this economic pocket? Bishop Phillips organized the neighborhoods against the train. Residents worried it would reduce property values, cost parking spaces, and otherwise hurt the pleasant feel of this neighborhood that Black families had worked for years to create and maintain.
5: They really spoke with one clear voice on that. People turned out in the greatest numbers that I'd seen during the planning. And they said, don't create another side of the tracks condition for us.
7: By the early 90s, Deborah and RTD did what so many highway builders of decades before didn't do. They backed down. They ended this line in five points. RTD recognized that Park Hill did not want a train. What did you make of that? That's uh, the oldest black neighborhood, or one of, next to five points in the city. And you're a white woman who is, you know, moved here in her 20s. Like, How how are you thinking about this?
5: You know, I I think we were all pretty naive at that time. Now, if I were to introduce myself in certain forums, I would certainly acknowledge my color and my gender. We were just out there being transportation planners. And even though it was a different community makeup than I was used to in my little suburban world, honestly, this might sound... Flippant, but i they just seemed like people that cared about their communities to me. I think RTD made the right decision to back off from that.
7: Park Hill residents had grown used to their neighborhood being a certain way. A train probably would have been useful there, but they didn't see it as an opportunity. They saw it as a disruption and a threat. Because there's only so much space on city streets. And in Denver, those streets were for cars. As RTD started to develop fast tracks, Denver's cultural commitment to the freedom of cars shaped the plan's ambitions. Did RTD have any appetite for projects that would force people to get out of their car?
5: I don't think so. I think it was very much provide a better option that was faster, more reliable, comfortable, and people would ride it.
7: And that's what RTD tried to do with fast tracks. In the early 2000s, more and more people were realizing that expanding highways was creating more problems. Because here's the thing, the roads we drive on are expensive. As much as Coloradans have spent on fast tracks, we've spent a lot more on roads. And researchers say bigger roads can encourage more people to drive on them which just makes traffic and air pollution worse. To try to solve the highway problem, RTD put its Fast Tracks lines in the suburbs, where there was more space, where they'd be less disruptive, and where they'd give commuters an alternative to clogged highways. But in doing so, they neglected the city streets that were literally built around transit, around streetcars, more than 100 years ago. Mark Imhoff is another former RTD planner. He's retired now with a few days of stubble on his chin when I met him last year. And he says it's those city streets where transit can be the most effective.
2: To me, part of the trick is to have a system such that a family only needs one car. Or maybe some don't need any. When my son lived in Chicago, he didn't have a car. And if he needed a car, he rented one for the
7: weekend. Fast Tracks, this multi-billion dollar transit investment, it was built for people with cars. Driving is the only practical or safe way to get to some rail stations. And some of the new transit-oriented departments and offices near those stations, they're being built with giant parking garages. Far from giving passengers freedom from a vehicle, Mark says this rail system and the developments around it still encourage people to drive.
2: Yeah, you might take the train to work, but it's a lot easier to do everything else by car. Mm -hmm. And people use it for other things, but I don't know if you ever look at night or midday, there's hardly anybody on the
7: trains. So now Denver is left with a conundrum. Hard-to-reach pockets in the suburbs have really good transit service. Well, in some of Denver's walkable city neighborhoods built around transit, buses only come once or twice an hour.
2: It's very interesting. It's really frustrating, too. As I can tell you, as a retired guy now, 30 years ago, I had hoped for a better system to retire into.
7: Mark says Fast Tracks is pretty good at what it was designed to do, to get suburbanites downtown. But he says now is the time to start building a better transit system in the city. It's tough, but other cities have built rail, like Seattle, Minneapolis, and even car-crazy Houston. Because from a climate perspective, cars are not the future. Transportation accounts for nearly a third of all carbon emissions in the state. That's more than any other sector, even power generation and oil and gas drilling scientists say even a big shift to electric cars won't do enough to reduce emissions. They say people, and especially car-crazy Americans, they just need to drive less.
2: We've been on this kind of steady track where people worry about it and they might get solar panels and might vote liberally about stuff. But people, I don't feel as a community, are willing to give up traffic lanes and pay more for more transit. And so, yeah, we had opportunity 30 years ago, we had more opportunity 50 years ago, and we still have some today.
0: Thank you. Hi, how are
7: you? Okay, uh, introduce yourself for me.
8: Okay, my name is Chantal Lewis. I serve on the board for the Regional Transportation District, um, District B, and we're on the 15.
7: And what is the 15 to you?
8: The the 15 is my daily commute. Um, It's my favorite bus. It's actually, um, when I was looking to purchase a house, I made sure to purchase my house on a line that had a lot of frequency, and the 15 is one of them. So I love it. It's a great ride, like that guy has a guitar. (laughs) She's playing
7: the guitar. Chantel Lewis has been riding RTD's buses for a long time. She's a 30-something now, with stylish glasses and a big smile. And she's the only Black member on RTD's 15-person elected board. I wanted to know what she thought about Transit's racist legacy, as Bishop Phillips had told me about.
8: When I think about his comment gosh, I get that. I get, like, we talked about that in high school, that we didn't want to be the poor kids on the bus. And I get people wanting the freedom, right, to travel where they want to, where they want to at any time.
7: Chantel grew up in Five Points, one of Bishop Phillips' old neighborhoods. And she says she was that poor kid on the bus. Her mom didn't have a car, and she was embarrassed by it. The commute to school took hours. So when she got to college, she saved up her paychecks from her fast food job. She bought a car as soon as she could. And it was great until she realized that the freedom of driving, it has its own set of costs, like parking. So she went back to the bus. And she says by this point in her life, what other people thought of her was the least of her problems.
8: I was working two jobs. I was in school full time. I was taking care of my kiddo. And those were my priorities and I thought to myself, one, it's so expensive to park every day at CU and two, none of the people who care about me being poor actually care enough to help me not be poor except for me. And so why should I care about what people think about or perceive me to be? And also... What's so wrong with someone being poor? Like, yeah, I didn't have any money, so what? That's what I was like trying to actively come out of was poverty. And the people who wanted to see me do well didn't care about what shoes I had on or what bus I was on or any of those things. Um, And I just stopped caring.
7: (laughs) She's one of the loudest voices in Denver for more transit service where people really need it. Places with low-income residents and people of color. Places like where this bus runs on East Colfax, a long, densely populated street originally built around streetcars. It's not rush hour right now. It's like the middle of the day. Um, we're in a pandemic, and this bus is pretty full.
8: It is full. It's the 15.
7: <laughs> Why do you think that is?
8: Because there are folks during this pandemic who depend on transit, right? There there are many people who have had the luxury of being able to work from the comforts of their homes, um, and myself included, um, but there are some folks who never stop working and who have needed to travel to grocery stores, healthcare workers, right? Folks who work in food service, um, the folks we depend on. Um, and so the 15 is full because this is a part of their livelihoods, this commute, this mode of transportation.
7: She says the idea that buses are for poor people while trains are for wealthy people, that's classist and racist too. She says Denver needs to get over its obsession with trains.
8: I think that goes back to what people perceive in terms of the value that buses add and the value that trains add. Like, they're literally doing the same thing. They're taking you from point A to point B to point C. They just look different, and they might travel at different speeds.
7: If Denver wants to be a world-class city, Chantal Lewis says it needs to build a transit system that's actually accessible for the people who really need it. And, she says, the city needs to start reshaping itself again, Because while cars solved some of yesterday's problems, they've created many new ones. They're dangerous, especially to pedestrians. They're expensive to own, but most of us need them to live our lives. And even though cars are cleaner now than ever before, they're a leading contributor to climate change and bad air quality. Brutal ozone pollution and thick wildfire smoke are now common in Denver summers. Electric vehicles will help with that, but they're still very expensive and the highways they use still take up a lot of space. EVs won't solve traffic. Chantal says the solution is to change how our city is built and how we move through it.
8: If we really want to see a better city, a better world, one that really prioritizes climate change, right, really prioritizes the impacts on our city, that we we have to change.
7: Denver, like other cities across the world, has transformed many times in the last 150 years, from a walk-in city to a transit city to a car city. Some cities, and especially in Europe, they've transformed again into places that more equally balanced cars with walking, biking, and transit. Chantal Lewis says it's time for that to happen here.
8: Like This is the time for us to start making investments in our infrastructure differently than we have in the past. So not continuing to widen highways, but really continuing or beginning to invest in transit and the expansion of transit.
7: Denver is slowly taking space away from cars. New bike lanes are popping up, and there are a handful of new bus lanes in and near downtown. Even the State Department of Transportation has become less car obsessed in recent years. It's still spending billions widening highways, but now it's also building bus stations into those highways, and it started its own small statewide transit service. RTD has a little more courage to take on cars these days, too. It's identified nearly 10 roads across the city and in some key suburban areas where it wants bus-only lanes, like here on Colfax.
8: It's an opportunity for folks who are utilizing the service to just sit past the folks who are in their, their vehicles all by themselves sitting in traffic.
7: But this plan has a long way to go. Taking away space for cars is still controversial. Few politicians beyond Chantal Lewis are actively pushing for it. Most RTD board members represent suburban areas and want more bus service there before boosting it in the city. The public will to ride may not be there yet either. Buses and transit still have not earned reputation for sometimes being unsafe. And RTD is in a huge financial hole. It'll be paying off its billions of dollars in train debt for decades. It doesn't have the money or the staff to expand bus service anytime soon. So what should we make of all of this? How can we tackle problems like climate change, air quality, and equitable access to opportunities? And will RTD's trains be any help? Well, here's what I've learned, both through reporting this series and since I started riding them almost eight years ago. When Cal Marcella first envisioned fast tracks, he built it as something that could help commuters escape traffic. He offered a vision of transit that tried to give everyone freedom, their cars and a train ride. The Denver area has been growing like crazy for the last decade as these train lines have opened. They have incentivized some transit-friendly growth But for the most part, governments here keep prioritizing the car by expanding highways, which increases urban sprawl. So air quality and traffic problems just get worse. If we really want to make a dent in those problems, we need to do more than change how we move. We also need to change how far we need to move. And that means we might have to change what our communities look like to be less like a suburb and more like a city. And I'm not talking about some luxury condos downtown on top of big parking garages. I'm talking about more affordable homes built in walkable places where you don't need a car to access everything in your life, work, school, and the grocery store. It means taking space away from cars and putting more resources into walking, cycling, and transit to make those easier and safer It means using the bus to get to a trailhead or a ski slope. It means a deep overhaul in what we build and how we live. Buses and trains will never be able to go as many places as a car can, but they shape our world in a way where you don't need to go as far. And that type of world has its own kind of freedom. Up the highway in Boulder, people there have a similar vision and they've put it into motion. But a broken promise RTD made years ago might prevent that vision from ever coming to pass.
0: We are very much in the center of Boulder in what I call condo hell. It's sort of a miniature little urban area centered around a transit system that doesn't exist.
7: Next time, in our final episode, the story of the ghost train itself, why the line to Boulder and Longmont was left behind, and whether it has any hope of being built, or if Colorado should move past it and into a new future.
0: Ghost Train, the new podcast from CPR News, created and hosted by transportation reporter Nathaniel Minor. Follow this and all of the episodes at NPR One, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's at CPR.org as well. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our conductors. Carl
7: Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
1: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle
0: Fulcher.
7: Nathan Heffel, Matt hers Michael Hughes,
0: Carla Jimenez,
7: Pedro Lumbrano,
0: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs with special thanks to Haley Sanchez. You're with CPR News and KRCC.